Well, good evening. I, uh, I thought that I was special at first when they said we were going to be up here on the podium, but then I realized that it's the Huxmans who are special. So <laughs> thank you guys for that, that uh, special music. That was We Are Redeemed, and uh, that's why we're here tonight. So this evening, as, uh, as uh, Pastor Matt asked slash told me that I was going to be speaking tonight, um, my mind went immediately to Ephesians 4, 25 to 32, and that's where we're going to be tonight. Last time I had the chance to speak on Sunday evening, we were in 4, uh, 17 to 24, the section right before this, and I was, as I was preparing for, for that message, I kind of found myself peeking around the corner to what was coming next in Ephesians, and so I'm excited to get to move forwards in Ephesians and see where Paul takes us from, from where we were in uh, 4.17 to 24 and now in 4.25 to 32 as he begins to give examples and explanation of where he's, where he's already been. So go ahead and open to chapter 4. Uh, but before we get there, let, let's go ahead and do remind ourselves of where we are in Ephesians. Um, remembering that Ephesians breaks down into those two big uh, main sections, one to three, the theology of the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ, and then chapters four through six, uh, the practical application of that theology. And really those, those things go like a hand into a glove. The theology must be practiced but practice has to be grounded in theology. Both of those things have to go together. Um, the one without the other is, isn't, it shows a lack of understanding or lack of, lack of practice. So as we find ourselves in, the, in the, the application portion of the book, he is, Paul has begun his, um, his exhortation to practical living to practical the practical application of his theology and in chapter 4 1 to 16 he has exhorted the church to live in built up in unity with each other then in 17 to 24 of that chapter he's demonstrated that those who have learned Christ must put off the former way of life that they used to walk in and put on the renewed life and then in 25 to 32, where we'll be tonight, he is not going to leave that teaching on a theoretical level. He takes that and puts it into specific examples, showing us what it, what it looks like to put off the old and to put on the new. And he, he demonstrates clearly that to have learned Christ and to have received him touches every aspect of our life and every aspect of who we are as those who are now his, those who have been redeemed. So, let's begin by reading the text for tonight, starting in verse 25. It says this, Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger, and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, 
so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from among you with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. Let's uh, go to the Lord in prayer. Dear Lord, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for the way it instructs us, for the way it gives us practical application, the way it teaches us and admonishes us. I pray tonight that uh, your word would be clear and that our eyes would be opened and that our hearts would be ready to be taught the things that you have for us from this section of scripture. We pray these things in your name. Amen. So it's clear that the central idea of this passage here is that Paul is motivating believers to put on Christ by giving them practical examples that are rooted and motivated in love for God and love for fellow believers, love for God and love for one another. And you can break these examples that he gives down into five main portions, and that will, that's what we'll be going through tonight. In 25, we see him admonish them to speak truth with their words, 26 and 27, to avoid sin with their anger. In 28, to share with their work. Then in 29, to give grace with the tongue. And in 31 and 32, to edify with the actions. Each one of these, interestingly, comes with a pattern, with a rubric almost that you could, you could plug them into. They, have a, they begin with a negative to put off, a negative to put off, followed by a positive to put on, followed by a reason for this action, a, a, a why statement for why this is being done. He doesn't just leave them with, do this, do that. He gives them why. Why am I instructing you to do this? And that's important. The why is really what draws all these things together and makes them all make sense. So, as we, as we begin, we're not going to get... Uh, very far because the first word in chapter 25 or in verse 25 which is not 25 chapters in Ephesians that was a test (laughs) verse 25 is therefore and growing up my dad always said when you get to a therefore you have to see what the therefore is there for so let's stop and see what what the therefore is there for so verse 25 therefore and that's an arrow pointing us back to all of, all of that context that he's just, just covered. Everything that Paul has just said, he's pointing back to that. He's pointing back to that. And it's important to notice where this list of commands comes. This isn't a moralistic checklist for them to, got that done, got that done, now I'm sanctified. This comes after all his teaching about having learned Christ, about after three chapters of theology of the gospel. And it follows immediately on the heels of, the, of 17 to 24 where Paul has urged them to walk no longer in the darkness and futility of their minds 
as the Gentiles do, but now that they've had their eyes opened to the old man, to the flesh, to the sin that is dwelling in them, they have learned Christ to walk in the newness of life that they've been given. And remembering that that whole whole previous section hinges on to have learned Christ, not to have learned facts about him or to have knowledge about him that you can recite, but to be in a relationship with him, to be in a relationship with Christ. That's what all all of the obedience flows from. The changed life flows out of the new reality, and there's no change apart from it. And that's one way that Christianity differs extraordinarily from any other religion. All other religions, you change yourself so that you can be right with God. In Christianity, God comes to us first. He makes the first move and then allows, because he regenerates us and changes us, now we're able to be obedient to him. So, all the practical changes that Paul lays out come from having learned Christ who is the catalyst to that change. But there's a second motivation that runs through every single one of these. Sin is of itself wicked and should be put away by those who've learned Christ because it's not who they are anymore. But in addition to that, as we will see, sin breaks unity with other believers. Sin breaks the unity and fellowship that should exist in the body of Christ. But holiness promotes unity and fellowship within the body of Christ. So there is a one anotherness that drives that drives each of these practical commands. Looking back to verses 15 and 16 of chapter 4, it says, "Rather speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so it builds itself up in love. The unity and health of the whole body is Paul's particular concern here. It's what drives him to urge that the old man must be put off. If the body is to be growing in health, its members need to be growing in health as well. We're not saved and sanctified unto ourselves, but unto the body of Christ, and our growth and maturity in health affects the growth, maturity, and health of the body as a whole. We're not adopted into God's family as only children. We're adopted into a a family with lots of other members, and we have a responsible to those other members to be, to be maturing, to be, to be, to be growing into responsible members of that family. So, the, uh, the good news, though, is that this doesn't happen to us automatically. So if you're sitting out there tonight and you're not perfect, just like I, I'm not perfect, the good news is Paul had to instruct the Ephesians in this. He had, to, he had to bring them along as well. And God does that for us as well. He's very patient with our, our failing. And he instructs us by his word into how to grow in, in maturity and in obedience to his commands. So with those things in, in mind, motivated by the change that Christ has worked in us and growing up in unity and health for the whole body, let's examine the instructions that Paul gives to us, these five, these five instructions, 
remembering that rubric, the negative, the positive, and the reason, and let's, uh, let's see what we can learn from Paul tonight. So the first one is uh, fairly straightforward. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. The negative is what leads off there, and it's, it's pretty straightforward. The negative is put away falsehood. Put away falsehood. Falsehood is a strong term. It is the opposite or antithesis of truth. And as such, we know that God is truth, so therefore falsehood or lie, lies, any, anything that is not truth, anything that is falsehood, is the opposite or antithesis of God. Falsehood is of the devil. John 8:44 makes that really clear. Speaking of the devil, it says this, he was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there's no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character for he is a liar and the father of lies. Romans 1 depicts that the one who's given over to the flesh is one who's exchanged the truth about God for a lie. So lies, falsehood, deception, they have no place in someone who's been, who, who is a member of God's family, who's been born again, who knows Christ. They have no place in him because they're of the devil. They're the opposite of God. So as those who know God, those things must be put off. Those things can't be the reality for, for a believer anymore. So then we come to the positive of this section. The positive is speak the truth. Speak the truth with our neighbors. And it's interesting, Paul here actually quotes Zechariah 8.16. It's a, it's a direct quote from the book of, from the book of Zechariah. Speak the, let each of you speak the truth with your neighbor. And as Honer points out in his commentary, the context of the book of Zechariah, where, where this command comes, God has just informed the remnant of the land that, uh, that he has good purposes still for, for them, for Jerusalem and for Judea. And this is the first command he gives to the remnant, to speak the truth. It's the first command that he gives those who remain in the land when he tells them he's going to restore the land. Interestingly, this is the first command that Paul gives to the Ephesian believers here. It is, a, it, it is imperative that God's people, it's of first importance that God's people be people who speak the truth, who are characterized by truth. And the statement focuses on the fact that it's an individual responsibility of each person. Let each of you speak the truth. So it's, 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 not to, uh, it's not just a general idea of speak the truth, but it's each of you. It's directed at each one of you to speak the truth. And then while, while the section overall is primarily pointed at uh, believers and their interactions with each other, the word neighbors there also makes it clear that we're not to just to speak the truth with each other and then it's okay to go lie to everybody else out there. We're to be people who are characterized by truth um, in all our interactions. And so what is the reason for this? What is the reason? The reason he gives is that we are members, 
one of another. We're members one of another. Chrysostom, I think I said that right, he's an early church father. If you're looking for creative baby names, I would I think I would advise you to look to the early church fathers because there's some good ones there. He says this. He says, if the eye see a serpent, does it lie to the foot? Or if the nose smells a deadly drug, does it lie to the mouth? Or if the tongue tastes something bitter, does it lie to the stomach? Your body acts in harmony with itself. It reacts based on what it senses to protect you. If your senses aren't communicating reality to the rest of your body, you have a serious medical issue that needs to be taken care of because your body will not last long in that condition. Just as we are members of one another, we're members of Christ's body, we need to be communicating truth to each other. This isn't just about me by myself. This is about me and my relationship with the other members of the body of Christ who I should be communicating truth to because I am, I am a member of them just as, just as the sense of smell or the sense of sight is, is in unity and, and a member of my own body. So because you've learned Christ, who is the truth, and because you belong to one another, speak the truth with your neighbors. So then we come to verse, verses 26 and 27. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Verses 26 and 27 could be positively stated. Avoid sin with your anger. Avoid sin with your anger. And this is a difficult section with a lot of varying opinions about can you be angry? Is it ever okay to be angry? Um, I'm not going to give an exhaustive list of explanations for, for when it's okay to be angry or when it's not. So if you came to see me soft the limb that I'm standing on, I'm sorry. I'm going to try to avoid doing that. But it's interesting to note that this section changes that rubric that we, that we talked about before, where it says, where, where we had a negative, a positive, and a reason. Here the positive actually comes first. And the positive is be angry. Be angry. So when you think about that, it seems a little bit odd. Be angry. Why, how, how could that ever be a positive command that we're, we're told to be angry? Well, he's not telling us to go around being angry all the time. It's not a command to be angry all the time. It's actually stated in the passive rather than the active in the original language. But I think we know inherently that not all anger is wrong. We know that God displays anger. And we know that he displays anger at wickedness throughout the Bible. And in fact, it's his wrath against sin that brings about our salvation. If God was not angry with sin, we'd have been simply left in it and would have not have, we would not have received the deliverer to save us and carry us from the wrath of God. His anger against sin is the motivating emotion to cause reconciliation between us and himself, to reconcile, to be reconciled to him. So God displays righteous anger against sin. Jesus himself displays righteous anger when he drives the 
money changers out of the temple. That's, that's a one that comes first to mind very often. And I would say the inability or lack of anger in the face of a severe display of wickedness would reveal a dangerously numb and cold heart towards righteousness. If sin doesn't in some way bother us or in some way cause an emotion of, of anger that, that this is taking place, whether maybe even in my own heart, it, just being distraught over, over sin, I think that's a dangerous place to be. If, if sin doesn't in some, if sin does not bother us, our emotions are given to us by God, but it's sin that takes those emotions and corrupts them. Righteous anger is anger that is directed against offenses against God and his holiness. And it should not lead us to actions that break other clear commands of God. So that's where we go very often. We become angry, and then we go and break all these other, other commands that God has given us. So anger against the atrocity of abortion is, is right. That's, that's, that's good. But if anger against abortion leads you to go shoot up an abortion clinic, that's wrong, because that's breaking another cl- a clear command that, that God has given. Anger righteous anger in that situation should look like seeking justice for, for those who are unborn and should, should look like showing, seeking reconciliation for those who are caught up in that sin. It shouldn't look like um, what we typically think of when we think of anger. It should, it should be motivating us in a positive way, not, not a way to break other commands. So then the negative we've already begun to examine there, is do not sin. Again, I think it's helpful here that the, idea, the word do not sin here is expressing the idea of missing the mark. So in your anger, don't miss the mark of, what, of righteousness. Don't miss the mark of righteousness in your anger. Most of the time in anger, we do miss the mark because we behave selfishly, we're motivated out of pride or self-interest or feeling that we have not received from others what we're, we're due, what people, what others owe us. So we lash out in anger and cause harm to those who are around us. That's the negative. That's the negative that is clearly pointed out here. And then he adds the caution. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. And I think this directs us to keep short accounts we're not to stew or boil for prolonged periods of time in our anger, not even in righteous anger, I think, because this will lead to bitterness. It'll lead to malicious action rather than righteous reconciliation. And I don't necessarily think that it's a command that you're never to go to bed um, if you've had a bad day or if, if you're angry in some way, but I think it is a command to keep short accounts to keep short accounts. If, it's, if it is a literal command, then I would say Alaska should be the most peaceful place in the world during the winter time. But in the summer, you can be angry for like months at a time because the sun never goes down. I think it's a command to keep, keep short accounts because that, because boiling and stewing in that anger 
is what we come to in 27, and give no opportunity to the devil. And this is the reason for this command. Give no opportunity to the devil. And I think it cuts both ways. Not being righteously angry provides opportunities to the devil to spread unchecked wickedness and potential entry into the body of Christ through, through our sin in some way. And sin floor prolonged anger also provides the devil the same opportunity to enter in and to destroy. And I think the focus is that by one individual's anger, the devil can obtain access to the entire body. I was uh, at lunch yesterday during the workday, and I was listening to some people talk about the recent AGCO shutdown. So I don't know if you work for AGCO, if you know things about the AGCO situation. I didn't, and I'm probably going to mess up the story. But AGCO was recently shut down for the last two weeks because there was a, a ransomware bug that got into their software system and shut their entire system down for two weeks. The ransomware bug entered through one of AGCO's locations in Finland. And the plant in Heston, Kansas was shut down for two weeks. So think about that in reference to your anger. There's some, there, there was, how, how could something like that, it's so small, get in in Finland and it affects the entire corporation of AGCO. So think about the, give no opportunity to the devil in the same light. Through, through your sin, through your anger, could, could you be giving access to the entire body, to the entire system for, for the devil to have opportunity against you and against the body? So again, the, the motivation for putting off anger and to have right, to anger used rightly is again the, the greater picture, the one another picture of the body of Christ. So then we go on to verse 28, to share with your work. Let the thief no longer steal. That's our, our first negative. So we're back to the beginning with the negative. We're back to the negative. Let the thief no longer steal. And this actually has brought uh, a widespread kind of speculation among commentators of like, who are these people who are stealing who need to be told not to steal? So are they professional thieves? Are they believers? Are they unbelievers? What, what is this? Who are these thieves? And the, the debate goes on. But one of the most helpful explanations I've found from the historical context is that it was not uncommon for those who were in a, a position where they were impoverished or without work to support themselves or provide themselves by stealing, by thievery. And it, it was fairly accepted that if you were in poverty, this was a way that you, that you would provide for yourself. And um, there was no, no welfare, no way to care for these people. That welfare would be a whole other topic. But um, in, in this case, it would, have been maybe social, it, w- it would have been socially acceptable for these people to steal in some way to provide for themselves. And it would have been necessary for Paul to point this out in the, in the pagan society 
that, that, the, that the Ephesians were living in. It's a good reminder to us again, though, that when we're saved, our sinning doesn't stop instantly. Paul still needs to instruct them in these things. But remember, where does stealing ultimately come from? And I think that's the main driving factor behind Paul's statement here. It's the main driving factor because stealing ultimately comes from a selfish heart. It comes from a heart that puts its own needs and desires ahead of another's to the point where you're willing to take what somebody else has and take it for yourself. And we can apply that to ourselves even if we're not master criminals or jewel thieves or anything of that kind. Christ makes it clear that he cares about the heart not just our outward actions. He cares about our heart. That is, do you have a heart of covetousness that desires and is selfish and self-centered? I think about, for me, how much time do I spend online looking at camping gear or guns or hunting equipment or in Cabela's, looking at those things that I want so anyway, uh, moving on, <laughs> starting to get a little convicting, but uh, the positive here is let him labor, let him work. And labor doesn't need a lot of explanation. You know, go look at the, the east foyer of the church, and if you were here on Saturday, you know that was labor. Uh, a lot of knocking down walls and tearing out ceilings and and hauling stuff to the dump. That's, that's labor. That's hard work. Those things don't come without effort. Honest work requires effort. Earning rather than taking requires labor. And work is a good thing. Work is not a part of the curse. Adam was commanded to tend and care for the garden before the curse came. One of the first things we know about Adam is he was given a job to do by God to name the animals. And if you think naming all of the animals that there are wouldn't be a hard task, then take a uh, look, open up a biology book and think about all the things that are in there that Adam, Adam named. So, so work, is, work is good. It was created by God. And Paul has even set an example of this in places where he's ministered. So if if you think of uh, Second, Second Thessalonians 3, 7, and 8, it says this, for you, yourselves know, or for you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us, because we were not idle when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it, but with toil and labor. We worked night and day that we may not be a burden to any of you. Working hard so that you are not a burden, not taking from others. So what's the reason? What is the reason for working and laboring instead of thieving and taking? The reason, again, is focused on others, that you may share with those in need. Work so you can aid those in the body who's whose physical needs, who are physically needy, who are less fortunate than you. And this would solve the, the problem of, of thieving among the poor who are in the church, right? 
if those who, who, uh, who had, had means to care for others, who, who, who would then care for those who were in the body, who were in need, and then if you think about, you know, over a span of time, maybe those people who are in need, they, they now have work, they're now able to care for others in need, and then those who cared for them, now they're in need. It's a, it's a give and take where they're both caring for and providing for the others who are in the body of Christ. So the motivation, again, that Paul continues to go to is selfless love and care for one another, to provide for, to work, so you can care for and provide for the physical needs of others who are in the body of Christ. And we come to verse 29. Give grace with your tongue. Verse 29. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth. Corrupting talk in the ESV, it's translated corrupting talk in ESV. Some, word, some translations translate it unwholesome words. Those are all adjectives in Greek that would give the idea of rotten wood or rancid fish or something that is foul and putrid. The idea is words that would spread a stink, that, would, that, that are, are foul, the harmful, things that you don't want around you, things that think damage others. These words should not come out of the mouths of those who have learned Christ. I think we often hear the, the reference to corrupt talk, and we think of the list of, of no-no words. And I would say those are included in this context, but I think it's broader than that. I think it's broader than that. I think it includes any words that are words that damage or words that harm others whether that's gossip or slander, whatever that is, it's a, it's a universal umbrella that covers those words that come out of our mouths that, that have a, a foul, putrid stench that would be corrupt, that would damage and harm others. Jesus taught in Matthew 15 that the words that come out of a man are not what defile, or the words that come out of a man are what defile him. They are what defile him because they reveal what's in his heart. They reveal what's in his heart. So if corrupt words are coming out, it's revealing of a corrupt heart. It's a revealing of a selfish heart that is focused on itself. So the positive thing is, such as is good for building up as it fits the occasion. Words that build up. If corrupting words are foul and putrid and rotten, then these words are words that heal, encourage, and instruct. If corrupting words are a broad category, then I think these words are a broad category as well. And it should, this should filter the words that come out of our mouths. The idea of fitting the occasion is the right tool for the right job. If you are building something, you can't hammer everything. You can't saw everything. You can't use a screw gun on everything. You have to use the right tool for the right job. Just the, the, your words, you are to rejoice with those who rejoice, to weep with those who weep, speaking the right words in the right moment. And I think Mary and Martha, like Pastor Matt brought out this morning, are a great example of this. Jesus dealt with each of them on an individual basis as helped them, as built each of them up individually individually. 
he didn't paint with a broad brush, but he, he encouraged each of them in a different way that built them up and encouraged them in their own faith. So the reason is to give grace to those who hear. And we think of grace most often as something that we receive from God, but here we, we see that grace is something that we can also give out to others by the words that we speak. Sometimes we have a hard time defining grace. We, we talk about it a lot, but then when, when we're like, what is the definition of grace? We're like, it's amazing. Uh, Honer defines grace as unmerited favor or enablement of others. And I think here, enablement or edification of others is the focus. In verse 28, we're focused on providing for the needs of others physically. Here, the focus is providing for the needs of others spiritually. Just like the words of Christ to Mary and Martha encouraged and edified them spiritually, so our words should encourage and edify the body of Christ spiritually so that we can build each other up, give grace to one another. So then, we come to verse 30. And verse 30 is difficult. You're not, it's, you've come through the first four commands on that list, and then you hit verse 30, and it's not a command. It's more of an exclamation point. And I think that though it, though, it, uh, though it seems odd to come in the middle of the string of those commands, it's placed there by Paul to kind of slap us in the face on purpose. If we'd taken out a pen and a piece of paper and started to create ourselves that sanctification checklist so that we could start crossing things off and say, oh, I don't lie, I don't, and start, started uh, creating ourselves a to-do list that was motivated by us being and us making ourselves right, this is Paul's sudden jerk on the leash to remind us why we are here and why we are doing what we are doing. He says, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. We have the third person of the Godhead living within us. He's our seal, our stamp of approval of salvation from God by grace through faith. And we are capable of bringing him grief through our disobedience. This takes the focus off of us and puts it onto God, the one who is saving us, who is sanctifying us. The focus is not on us, it's on Christ who's doing the work, the Holy Spirit. Martin Lloyd-Jones helpfully summarizes this idea, and he says this of the Holy Spirit in this case. He says, here is the Christian way. Here is the biblical way of looking at this whole matter of sanctification, not for ourselves, but for his sake. Our sanctification, our life, our conduct is ever to be the realization and outcome and outworking of what he has done for us and our sense of his glory and our desire to live 
for the praise of the glory of his grace. Such a wonderful reminder to us as we go through this list of commands that we are created to bring glory to God and we, can bring, we bring glory to God by obedience and conformity to him when he is working in us through Christ and our, our willing, our joyful obedience to him brings glory to him. It's what motivates us. It's his glory, not, not our glory, not so I look like a good person, not so I can check off the things that make me feel good about myself, but it's for his glory. It's for his glory so that we do not grieve him through our disobedience. And then finally, we come to our last command to edify with your actions, verses 31 and 32. In the previous four, we've had kind of uh, very individual, you know, talking about anger, talking about falsehood, talking about about uh, thieving. Here, kind of changes that. We get a string of words, string of commands. Let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, slander be put away along with all malice. So Paul goes from more specific illustrations to more of a list. And these are all actions or attitudes that are self-centered and lead to harm and damage of others. Interestingly, the word put off here is different from the word put away or put off in verse 25. That first word in verse 25 is the idea of taking something off, so like taking off a garment, taking off a coat. The word put away here is actually the idea of taking something, hanging it up or suspending it, or of a sword, taking it and putting it into its scabbard or taking a dagger and putting it, in, putting it away, putting it into its sheath, putting it away rather than using it anymore, putting it back on, back on the shelf, back in its place, not in use anymore. And I think that's a fascinating word picture here. It's the idea of we are no longer to be harming others, so stop running around swinging your sword and hurting others with your actions, but instead put it, put it away, put it in its sheath, stop harming, and begin healing others. So positively, be kind, tender-hearted, forgiving. All the opposites of the words that, were, that just came before, all the harmful words, put them away, and instead heal and help with your actions. So what's the reason? The reason is, as God in Christ forgave you, we are to forgive others as God in Christ has forgiven us. Think of all that God has forgiven us. How could we not forgive others when we're hurt and offended, when we think of, of the debt that Christ paid for, our, for us, of what he forgave us, when we were enemies of him. It's clear that this life that Paul is laying out is diametrically opposed to the life of the old flesh. No one would have come up with this on their own. 
except for having learned Christ. And no one continues, I'm sorry, no one would have come up with this on their own. It's from Christ, from having learned Christ, that we are to put these things away. This is no longer who we are. But he's shown us here that we are to be putting on the new reality of what Christ has done to us. He's given us specific examples of that. And the motivation continues to be unity and fellowship with the body, motivated by love for one another. A lot of times we, we tend to think of our sanctification as being about us, being about me, me and Jesus. But here we see the, that Paul is really driving at, it's about us and the family of God, one an- the one anotherness of sanctification. So practically, how does this affect us? Notice this isn't an exhaustive list. He hasn't gone through every sin that you could think of committing and then given a, uh, a negative, a positive, and a reason for it. But I think we can take that rubric and we can apply it to our own lives. What are the, uh, what are the negative actions that I need to remove that aren't a part of me anymore because I've learned Christ? What are the positive actions that I should put on? And then what is my motivation for that? What is my reason for, for why I no longer do what I used to do and why I now do what I do? If we don't have that why in front of our minds, it's, it very quickly either becomes legalism of us just following and, and checking things off or it doesn't stick very long because it, doesn't, we, it hasn't settled into, why am I doing this? What, what is motivating me to do this? So then thinking about those whys, thinking about what motivates me to, to walk in the newness of life. Walking in this way brings us joy because it brings God glory when we are obedient to him And that's what we were created to do. We were created to bring glory to God. And when we are obedient to him, we are doing that. And when we are doing what our purpose is, what we were created to do, it brings us joy. So for greater joy, obey, be obedient to these commands. They're for your joy. They're not to steal the fun out of life. They're to bring joy into into life because it's what we were created to do. And then finally, walking in this way is, is good for our fellow believers and it's good for us. We want to grow in that fellowship and that love with one another so we live in ways that are of obedience, of conformity to the commands of God and it's, it increases the health of the body. And then when the whole body becomes healthy, we ourselves also become healthier because we're members of a body that's being built up in health and unity and love and fellowship around Christ, who has, who we have all learned, who has regenerated us and adopted us into his family. And that is our motivation. That is, that is what drives us to be obedient to God. 
That is the, that's the heart behind sanctification. That's the heart behind these commands and imperatives. So let's close with a word of prayer. Dear Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you teach us and instruct us by it. That you have given us all that we need in it and through it to grow up into sanctification and maturity. We pray that we would remember that because we have learned Christ, we're now able to be obedient to you for our, for our joy and for your glory. And I pray that we would, as a body, grow in health and grow in our love for one another. We thank you for this Lord's Day and the reminder that it is to us of your finished work, of your resurrection and the power that you have over sin and death. We love you, and thank you for this time together. We pray these things in your name. Amen.